Welcome, everyone, to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Cave, a podcast where we discuss the characters and connections in the ever-expanding universe that revolves around Stephen King's Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. And you can buy merch at store.twoguysdarktowercame.com. In this episode, we'll cover The Talisman, Part 2, The Road of Trials, Chapters 6 through 13. Let's start the show! Jack travels to the territories, where he magically has the correct clothing and speaking ability to sort of fit in. He finds the captain that Speedy Parker told him to seek out, and sees the dying queen of the territories, who looks just like his mother. After scary encounters with a courtier named Osmond, and then Morgan Sloat's twinner, Jack escapes back to his world, but finds himself trapped in a bar in the town of Oatley. Escaping a goat man in Oatley, Jack finds himself back in the territories, where he sees some strange sights and remembers some odd events from his childhood that help him to make connections about his father, Morgan Sloat, and the Territories. Jay, I'm going to admit, it's been uh, about a week since I finished reading this section, and when I put together that summary of what happened, I had to sort of flip back through the book to sort of remind myself what exactly happened and why Mm. was this important, just because I find myself reading it and not having the material stay with me for very long just sort of goes in one ear and out the other as it were i gotta say i am also struggling with this book a bit i don't know if that will change over time as i continue to read but thus far uh, i'm kind of concerned is it the pacing i sort of feel like we have now read 13 chapters of this book and I feel like the story itself hasn't really begun. And I think that's too far to go into a book without getting things going. Agreed. We are, I think, almost a third of the way through the book at this point, And it really just seems like we're getting started, maybe. Yes, we're in the territories now, but Jack's sort of jumping back and forth. And he still doesn't know what's going on. And we don't know what's going on. We have get these little pieces. And I think part of that is... King and Straub trying to give us some mysteries that they'll reveal slowly as time goes on, but it doesn't make for us being engaged with the book because we don't really know what's happening. Yeah. And I think another problem that I'm having is that I know that Jack is 12 years old and precocious for a 12 year old, but many of the decisions and actions that he takes and makes are, to me, less believable than Jack being able to flip to another world. Mm. I am fully on board with the idea that there are other worlds than these, that Jack can, through the magic of a very bad-tasting potion, transport himself to a medieval-style version of the world we know. But when he does things like, I am trapped working for this terrible guy at a bar in a town where I don't want to be. And he doesn't just get himself out of there. 
I struggle to buy all of the motivations that he seems to feel trapped and can't move. And I think that there is a, a version of every day that he spent there where he could have easily just vanished. Mm. Literally, just take a sip of the magic juice and he's gone. It's stuff like that that it pulls me out of the story. I'm like, uh, am I? I don't want to spend a lot of time haranguing this book, but this is one of the reasons why I'm struggling. Yeah, like you said, I think there's the potential that it's going to get better. There are so many people who really like this book. It's got a fairly good reputation. I think we mentioned last episode that the Duffer brothers who are doing Stranger Things now have picked this up and have optioned it. Steven Spielberg wanted to do it for the longest time. So there's enough fans that there's a good story here. Mm -hmm. We're just not there yet. And I'm hoping that it, it happens because unlike most Stephen King stories, where when I finish a chapter, I'm excited to see what happens next. That hasn't happened yet with this book. Yeah. Stephen King tends to write in this very propulsive style. His stories move at a really steady clip, sometimes a really fast speed. And whether it's a 12-page short story or a 1,200-page behemoth, it's never a challenge to turn the page. Right, And this is one of the first times I've come across one of his books, and definitely the first time in a book that we've covered on our show, that I've been kind of like, maybe I'll read more today. I don't know. Yeah. Like you said, let's not spend too much on this because we have hopes that things will turn around, but maybe we could talk a little bit about what actually happens in this book. And this section is called The Road of Trials, and I think we see Jack's first trial which is ending up in this fictional town of Oatley, New York. And there's this pretty spooky tunnel scene that is a little bit reminiscent of when Larry has to go through the tunnel in the stand. Yeah. His fear is rats and, and all the, the dead people there. Jack feels like there's something else in there with him. We don't get exactly what there is. But that sort of is just a foreboding for what the actual trial is, which is as we said earlier, Jack gets sort of stuck in a child slavery situation where he asks to do some odd jobs around this bar so they can make a little bit of money to continue his trip forward and unfortunately lands upon the owner of a bar who is not as nice as some of the other people he's run into on his trip and really makes it a bad place for him. It seems like this whole town though, maybe sort of like Salem's Lot is a place of evil because not only is the owner of the bar not great, but a lot of the townspeople don't seem to be that great. Lots of fighting. And then even one guy turns into a goat man. So none of this is uh, uh -huh, uh -huh. <laughs> seems very, uh, very cool. And even out-of-towners are like, hey, Oatley, that's sort of a sketchy place you might want to stay away from there. I think what you just summarized, though, is it's an interesting part or aspect of this story. I. I need to recognize the fact that this is basically a, a young adult version of a story by King and Straub. And perhaps that is what is contributing to some of my struggles. But the tunnel scene in the stand, and there were two that were gruesome and terrifying. One was the one with Larry, and the other one was a trash can man. Mm, yep. Those two scenes were two of the scariest parts of that very scary book. And this is a much simpler, much safer feeling ultimately. And I wouldn't necessarily say watered down, but 
I never really felt scared for Jack. And what he experienced seemed like he got scared. But again, I wasn't worried that he wasn't going to make it. And your example of Salem's Lot, that town was just ripe for being infested by vampires because of its evil nature. And it seems like Oatly is like that. But the Oatly people are just mean and nasty. And I don't know. It just feels like a less terrible place to be than Salem's Lot. But I find Salem's Lot to be far more interesting. Like, I think I would actually rather go to Salem's Lot because it would be more fascinating in a train wreck kind of way than Oatly. I think Oatly would just feel like, I just want to keep walking. Yeah. Nothing to see here. I think it's worth uh, mentioning, though, that this terrible experience, Jack's first trial in Oatly, doesn't happen in the magical fairy tale land of the territories. It happens in the real world, in what is supposedly our world. Right. And that kind of makes it scarier, right? The fact that you don't need to be in a fantasy story, you don't need to be in a horror novel to get stuck like this, to get to to have this terrible experience in your life. Yeah, I think that that's best portrayed in the bartender's girlfriend maybe mm-hmm. who's liter- who is stuck there, right? And sort of by choice, like she realizes that she's being treated badly by this guy, but she sort of thinks maybe I deserve it and no, oh, I'll I'll get out of it someday or he really does love me, like all those excuses that she makes for herself. Mm-hmm. That's I think the sad part of the story to know that, oh, there are people like that who are like, oh, this is my situation. I'm sort of stuck in it, but whatever. I'll make best, even though I'm getting abused. And Jack is just not not meant for this at all. You get the sense that he had lived a privileged life when he lived in California as a result of a mother who was a film star and a father who was a, a rich agent. And oh yeah, he lived a good life. And now all of a sudden he's hauling kegs of beer back and forth as a in a bar it's just sort of crazy and he's out of place there just as much as he's out of place when he's in the territories even though he has the clothes and the language he doesn't quite fit in and he doesn't know how things work exactly and he doesn't know how to behave himself or act in a certain way and he's able to get by in a lot of places like when he meets the captain and they're confronted by osmond uh, and his whip he's able to to talk himself for a little bit and when he meets the family later on and when he's at the market he can pass a little bit but he's out of place in both worlds here yeah some of the world building in the talisman is not that great like i wasn't a fan of the money knuckle sticks i thought that that was a terrible way to have currency because yeah i guess you have a stick that's like say has 20 knuckles on it and you pay for something that's three knuckles so you break three off and then you have uh 17 knuckles left (laughs) well eventually you're just going to end up with a big bag of single knuckles and that would be a coin everyone's paying at pennies at that point yeah this doesn't make a lot of sense but some of the things in the in the book some of the world building is great i really loved how the you know so-called regular folks are portrayed in the territories they're just the little people right they're not the royalty they're not soldiers they're they're not um anybody special but they are representative of the majority of the people in the world and they have 
important things in their lives and they want to stay out of the stuff that could get them into trouble or cause them problems. Yes. And that's, that's really relatable. Indeed. I, I agree. I also liked how this idea that comes up that we already know about the twinners and how there are people who represent both are represented in both worlds. Jack's mom being the queen and the territories. But this also this further idea that what happens in our world influences what happens in the territories and possibly vice versa as well. And mm-hmm. so there's this whole point at the end where Jack is starting to make those connections. He had heard all this before via not intentionally eavesdropping, but hearing his father talk to his uncle Morgan. Mm-hmm. That's a cool idea that I think there's going to be a lot that happens with. I mean, the goat man who shows up in Oatly, like that doesn't seem normal. That doesn't happen in our world. That's got to be somehow related to what's happening in the territories, I would imagine. For sure. And I like uh, Jack's turn of phrase to encapsulate this idea, like who plays those changes? Mm. Because that's like a a jazz term, right? Right. To play the changes. So. And he connects it right to the jazz musician who his father loved. And because of that, he's very familiar with that particular album of of music. And I guess that further connects to Speedy Parker and his various incarnations that Jack thinks he encounters. So I love how the who plays those changes um, kind of just summarizes and, and gives this idea of the the connection and the influence across worlds, uh, a nice name. Yeah. So our last episode, the reading ended with Morgan Sloat going to kill somebody at his apartment. Mm-hmm. He, he had ended up realizing, oh, I got to got to kill this guy. And he comes to a realization, Morgan Sloat does, that if I run into Jack, I'm probably going to have to kill him too. This section ends in a similar vein with Jack having this remembrance of his dad and how his dad and Sloat had this discussion about the territories and what their aims for it were. And he remembers this incident when one of the men who worked for them died in this horrible electrical accident. Jerry Bledsoe. Jerry Bledsoe. He sounds like a quarterback for some NFL team or something. (laughs) And so Jack is starting to put together the pieces which means King and Straub are putting together some of the pieces as well. And I wanted to talk a little bit about what Jack's dad's role seems to be and what Morgan Sloat's role seems to be, because they both realize that they can have influence there, but they have two different approaches. And I I sort of think of it as like Sloat is like a Klingon and uh, Phil, Jack's dad, is like, a captain of a starship in the Federation who's like, oh, we got to follow the prime directive and leave things as untouched as possible. The Klingons don't have their own version of the prime directive? I don't think so, do they? I, I'm not the Star Trek fan that you are, but I, I, I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think they do either. They just conquer. Yeah, right. right. And, and pillage. They don't explore. No. I, I think you kind of summed it up there. <laughs> I don't know how much more there is to say except to bring that into a simpler version, which is... Phil doesn't want to alter the territories in any meaningful way. He wants to respect it in its current and and natural state. And Sloat 
wants to take advantage of it to the maximum extent possible. I guess my thought, though, is what does Phil want to do there, though? Is it just an interesting place like, oh, I can make my way into this world and look and see what I could see here? I think that's a mystery. It's not solved in what we've read so far, Mm -hmm. but it's almost as if, hey, I found this cool door into this other world and now I... Maybe I should just shut the door and not go back there. And that doesn't seem to be the case necessarily because he's told Morgan about it, which in retrospect is probably a big mistake. Yeah. Biggest mistake of his life. That is a very intriguing question. Why did Phil go there? Like, why did he keep going there if he realized that he could damage both the territories and his world? And why did he tell anybody about it? Yeah. And why was he so... Why was he so unable to see Sloat for who he really was? Yeah, I think that that's the part that really gets me because, I mean, I think we get the sense that Phil must be a somewhat smart guy. Like, Mm -hmm. he went to an Ivy League school, he's put together this pretty successful business, and yet something has happened where it's pretty clear to us that Morgan's a bad guy. I know that King and Straub are probably making that obvious to us. Jack obviously doesn't see it at first, but now that he's looking back, he realizes, oh, he he says things in such a way that realize that you realize oh he's, he doesn't really mean what he says or he's talking about jazz but he obviously hates jazz i could tell by the tone of his voice mm-hmm. and there's this the secondary level of what he's talking about that other people can see through but for whatever reason phil seems blind to so yeah even uh, at 6 years old jack was perceptive enough to see that sloat's full of shit yeah yeah, so I, I think that this is sort of maybe the ongoing mystery that uh, we're supposed to be intrigued by and, and see what happens in addition to all the things that are happening in the territories that I have a feeling King and Straub maybe want us to think are cooler than they are. Like They spend a lot of time with Jack talking about this sight of these men on this tower who jump off and then have these wings, and he can't tell, do the men actually have wings or do the men have built some sort of wings Icarus style and they're flying around and what a what a wonder this is and it brings Jack to tears how beautiful it is and I think it's not as cool as we're supposed to think. It doesn't seem as cool as uh, Jack seems to think it is. Like I was just like, okay, yeah, yeah, all right, I get it. They don't bring Jack and therefore us close enough to that to know the, know the answer to that question. Yeah. That, is this a, uh, a physical wing or a, a harness system? And if, if we're going to stay at that distance, then I feel like we've been denied part of the potential magic that these creatures or men with contraptions uh, represent. And either way, like, I don't think it's more magical to, to keep that from us. I think it's, it's diminished. Because nope, either way, it'd be cool, right? Yeah. One, they have wings. Wow, that's amazing. Or two, they've built some sort of wings that allows them to fly. That is also amazing. But instead, I just sort of see these figures flying around, and I'm like, oh, well. Especially in a, a, a world that seems to have medieval technology. Yeah. Could you imagine, like, people with castles and moats and suits of armor and also wings that let them fly? That, that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah, maybe, I mean, Jack, you just wasted four days in Oatley, New York. Maybe you could just, you know, go off the path a little bit and get closer for us. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping that the rest of this goes well. We're still in the middle of the road of trial, so I'm guessing there are more trials to come along this road that Jack is on. Uh, We will see what they are. But in the meantime, let's see if there's any Dark Tower Thinnies. 
I definitely found a handful of thinnies, and I suspect we will never struggle to find thinnies with this book. Yeah. I think both you and I had seen this one, which is when Jack is walking through, I think, the Queen's tent and the little festival area that's set up by where the, the Queen's encampment is. Mm-hmm. And Jack is following with the captain, and he says they had already passed the stall when Jack's mind was finally able to accept what his eyes had seen. The horse had two heads. Ah. And I think later on, there's a parrot that's, that's similar, and it made us both think of the fact that there are threaded stock versus mutants, or muties, as there are in Roland's world. Indeed. It also reminds me of Zaphod Beeblebrox. In- ah, look at you. Pulling out the uh, Douglas Adams. Yes, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy reference. Nice. I thought this was an interesting thing to call out, that there's a moment when Jack is noticing and reflecting on the the light shining into the Oatly Tap, the bar where he's trapped. And it says, The sunlight seemed to come through the dirty glass and then just fall dead on the floor, as if the Oatly Tap were located in a slightly different dimension. Slightly different dimension? Other worlds than these. Yep. Territories, thinnies. Yeah, not the uh, only one. Later on, there's a back and forth when someone says, and should I tell you another crazy thing? Why not, Sloat answered. That's not the only other world out there. So, uh, again, references to other worlds than these. Absolutely. I thought that it was interesting that Morgan Sloat was naturally good at being dim. Mm. The line... Good old Uncle Morgan deflected observation. Your eye just sort of naturally slid off him. We know that Randall Flagg and the low men are dim, or they can make themselves dim. Absolutely, that, that's a good one. When, when Jack is with in the Queen's encampment, he overhears one of the men saying, I know not what they may have gotten up to in the outposts, where order is thin, but here we hold to the Queen. The idea that there is a land further on where order is thin might also indicate that there is uh, some buckling of reality there, maybe. Mm, I like that. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it quite that way. I just thought of it like the further you go from the center of government, the less structure and organization and and law and order, basically. But I think I, I like how you put buckled in, into that interpretation, that it reminds me of how in a lot of the, the land that Roland covers, time doesn't always make sense. Direction doesn't always stay consistent. So it might be that if you walk in one direction far enough here in the territories, you're in another world yeah. for a while without even knowing it. So Sean, what about uh, yucking it up? Anything in this section of the book that really grossed you out? Blah. So Jack gets picked up by what seems to be a kindly family on his way to a market, and he's sitting in this wagon, and he notices that near the back of the cart, an irregular mound of raw meat, long, peeled-looking sides of beef, big slab-like steaks, a heap of ropey internal organs he could not identify, slithered beneath a glistening mat of flies. The powerful smell of the raw meat assailed Jack killing the hunger evoked by the cheese. It's not often that I'm around a whole lot of raw meat. And I'm, I, I could see like a big slab-like steak, like, you know, used to hang in the Fuddruckers. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm okay with that. But like, 
internal organs beneath a mat of flies. Yeah, that that got to me a little bit. Those are just packing flies. Oh, it's, it's, to, it's to keep it from from breaking on uh, on impact. Oh well, that makes it much better. That never yeah. mind. Let's move this into fun stuff instead. <laughs> what do you got? I have a a yucking it up that is almost exactly like the a yucking it up that I called out in Doctor Sleep, because in this one Jack is in the men's room at the Oatly Tap. And he pukes in a similar way to Dan Torrance. This comes from the line. He managed to make it to the tap's only stall, where he was faced with the unflushed and sickeningly fragrant spore of the last customer. Jack vomited up whatever remained of his dinner, took a couple of hitching breaths, and then vomited again. He groped for the flush with a shaking hand and pushed it. I mean, there's always so many ways people can vomit, I guess. King's got to go to that he goes to, I guess, here. But the thing that I just can't get past is the fact that there is an unflushed, uh, uh, that there is unflushed contents in the toilet already. Yeah. So you're at one of the lower moments that you can be in physically, and you're face to face with one of the grossest things you can be face to face with. It's just making a bad time worse. Indeed. And then you get chased by a goat man. Just when you thought your day was at its lowest, (laughs) (laughs) the goat man shows up. Well, we want to thank our patrons for continuing to support the show. They get access to exclusive Patreon content, such as bonus podcast episodes. You can visit patreon.com slash two guys dark tower to learn more and become a patron today. Sean, is it time for some fun stuff? You know it is. So I think this is from the long walk, Jay, but King has come back to it. It's left foot, right foot, hay foot, straw foot. And it's a way of that people who might not know their left from right, but they did know their difference between hay and straw. They tie hay to one foot and straw to the other. So they knew which foot to move. And I just thought it was interesting. They came up again because I didn't know what it meant the first time and I had to look it up. But this Mm. time I was all prepared for it. So what does it mean that like when you're, you're uh, moving hay, it, you throw it to your left, and you're moving straw, you throw it to your right or something? No, you like you physically take a piece of hay and tie it to your left shoe, and you take a piece of straw and tie it to your right shoe. And so when they would tell people, move your left foot, they could look down and say, oh, that's my hay foot, and I move my hay foot. And then I would move my straw foot or my right foot. This is just the act of the person recognizing hay and straw on a foot or the other foot, yes as opposed to knowing that for like starboard and port mean one direction or the other right this is this is a way of te- teaching them their left and the right because they might not know their left from their right but they did know the difference between hay and straw so you'd physically tie the hay and straw to your different feet so that when they'd say hay foot they would knew, know to move their left foot forward mm. okay it seems like a really long way to go beyond just helping somebody learn left from right. Yeah, well, eventually they would learn it that way, right? Left foot, hay foot, right foot, straw foot. They'd figure it out. But just that initial getting going. Maybe it's not as fun now that we've talked about it for five minutes and explained it. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? Scratch that. Move this back to yucking it up. (laughs) I've got another one that is actual fun, though. And that's this. Jack is reminiscing about 
traveling across the country, and the first thing he would see would be a set of McDonald's Golden Arches, what his mother called the great tits of America. (laughs) And there's probably a lot of younger uh, listeners who didn't realize that a lot of McDonald's back in the old days had actual arches. They were like part of the architecture of the building. And so they would look like these two round mounds that were on top of the McDonald's. They were the arches. They look like tits. Maybe in like a push-up bra or something. Well, yeah. I mean, you had to use a little bit of imagination, but that's all we <laughs> thats all we had back in our day. She didn't say the great udders of America, right? We didn't have e- easy access to pornography like kids nowadays do, so we just had to imagine these. We just had to drive past the McDonald's. That's all we times. had. <laughs> so I wanted to call out a couple of things that I thought were fun here. The cook in the Queen's Pavilion. Reminded me a little bit of the the cook or the chef in Lunch at the Gotham Cafe. He doesn't have a lot of lines in Gotham Cafe, but he seems like he has a strange way of speaking. It's a little bit different because he's like, hey, gee, what's the matter? You know, like, yeah, something like that. And this guy had sort of a, a kind of uh, an accent or maybe an impediment of some kind. And he says, get out of my kitchen, you slugs. This is no shortcut. This is no raise track. And he's just <laughs> screaming it at, because he's the guy in charge. He's, the, he's the, the chef. Yeah. He's the boss. He gets put back in his place by the, the captain of the guard, but still reminded me of Gotham Cafe. I like it. And that was a fun story that we covered in our bonus episode. So go check that out. Yeah. Both you and I spent some time in upstate New York, and that is where Oatley is, where Jack gets trapped. And when he goes into the back room, he sees case after case of bottled beer, Budweiser, of course, but also such local favorites as Genesee, Utica Club, and Rolling Rock. And those brought back some memories, not always pleasant ones, but a bunch of memories of Utica Club and Genesee and later on Rolling Rock when I had family in Pennsylvania. But yeah, I knew all those beers, local favorites. Did you ever partake in a in a good old Genesee while you were in Rochester, Jay? Not being a beer drinker, I never drank any of these beers but um, you're better off i i was around a lot of people who did drink them and uh yeah being a rochester resident for a number of years these these are these are some of the favorite beers around favorites might be pushing it but some of the cheapest beers around might be a better way of saying it the popularity (laughs) yes absolutely Uh, the, the last thing i wanted to call out was something that i thought was a a very underhandedly critical line perhaps um maybe it wasn't king who wrote this maybe this is this is straub a high dingy many windowed building that looked like a mental hospital and so was probably the high school (laughs) it's true how should we uh, design the architecture for this this place where children go to learn and grow and mature i don't know let's make it seem like a mental hospital that that makes sense they're all institutionalized. That's right. All right. We've talked a couple times already about some other worlds than these. How about some other worlds than these in our life, Jay? I am currently watching season four of Succession on HBO Max, soon to be just rebranded as Max. Yeah, I think Question you're right. Mark? This is the fourth and final season. I am still loving the 
incredibly hateful characters that this show is populated by. And I'm looking forward to seeing how the whole thing wraps up. If, you, if you've been watching the show, you know uh, what I'm talking about. But a lot of people have told me that they've struggled like I did uh, initially watching it because I, I thought it was a drama. And a drama with this many people who are so unlikable like just adds up to uh, re- like revulsion. Mm. And so I'm not trying to talk people out of this. I'm saying this is, this is one of the best original HBO shows that uh, has come along. It's really well written, incredibly well acted, but it is full of unlikable characters. The, what did the trick for me was when I learned and started to realize that this is actually not a drama. It is a comedy. Mm. Look at it through that lens, and I think you will find that you enjoy the show immensely. And that's all I'll say. But as a tag on to this Other Worlds Than These recommendation, I have recently rediscovered and am listening to the Decoding TV podcast hosted by David Chen and many others. And the way he structures his show is that he covers all things TV. And for a a certain show, he'll be consistent with his co-host. But if he's covering, say, five different shows at once, he might have five different co-hosts. Okay. So that's why I just, I'm just calling out David Chen, but I'm listening to his coverage of Succession, along with his coverage of The Last of Us, along with his coverage of She-Hulk. I'm playing a little catch up with some of his uh, older episodes, but he does a lot of great podcasts and I always like everything he does. So I wanted to call that out here. So if you like listening to podcast coverage of TV shows or movies, check out Decoding TV. You bringing up the fact that David Chen works with a lot of hosts, are you firing me? No. (laughs) Oh, okay. I thought maybe I was getting fired. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, Sean, next book, I got to find somebody else to do the the, the show with. With each new book, there is a new co-host. It's J+. Wow. I wasn't going to tell you this way, but since you asked. (laughs) Join us next episode as Jay and a host to be named later cover. That's Jay and TBD. Jay, I'm also going to recommend a show from HBO Max, soon to be Max. This is from four years ago. It is Chernobyl, which is a five episode look at the Chernobyl accident in the Soviet Union in 1986. Your all of your notes are one word, the word grim. Yeah, I love it. It it is it is very grim. Growing up in the eighties, I think we were told that the Soviet Union was a grim place to live. Everything was sort of gray, and people stood in lines for things, and they didn't have everything. Even get blue jeans. It was a terrible place. This show sort of exemplifies that, and talks a lot about all the errors that happened at Chernobyl, and is also about how lies can build up, and without knowing the truth, a whole system can fall apart. I have a feeling that this show, Chernobyl, is not just about Chernobyl, but maybe be speaking to larger things that relate to to today. It is created by one of the creators of The Last of Us TV show, and you heard Jay and I both rave about that show or you heard me rave about it and then i heard jay rave about it after the fact at, mm-hmm. when he took my recommendation and watched it it's a great show i don't know if i'd recommend it because it's a hard watch 
And it's definitely not something that I'm going to return to, but I think it's an important show and very well done. So if you get a chance and it's your sort of thing, check out Chernobyl. Sean, were you perhaps uh, miscategorizing its genre and it's actually a comedy? <laughs> you, it could be. <laughs> they don't play the Benny Hill theme song the whole time? Like, yeah. You know, nuclear power plant explosion. That might fit. It might. It would be an entirely different show if they put a laugh track on, but it could work. It could work. It could work. Well, that's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media are available in the show notes. Check out our merch at store.twoguystothedarktowercame.com. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Next episode, join us as we cover The Talisman, Part 2, The Road of Trials, Chapters 14 through 19. Whoa. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. This, what you're hearing now, is the beautiful sound of my voice. And this is mine. <laughs>